Tonight, a new study suggests that many young Canadian professionals are at a mental health breaking point. I have some thoughts on what the root causes might be. It's Friday, June 2nd, 2023. I'm David Menzies, and this is The Ezra Levent Show. Shame on you, you censorious bug. According to a new study, many young Canadian professionals are at a mental health breaking point. But the question arises, why is that? What are the true root causes? By way of background, it was a few days ago I came across a CTV report regarding mental health in the workplace. And, you know, I wasn't all that surprised CTV was reporting on this, given that CTV's corporate parent is Bell Media. Every February, Bell launches a virtue signaling initiative called Let's Talk, described as, quote, an effort to raise awareness and combat stigma surrounding mental illness in Canada, end quote. Yeah, just as CIBC has hitched its social marketing wagon to fighting breast cancer, Bell is very bullish on mental health, except that I just don't buy what Bell is selling. I mean, is this telecom titan truly concerned about mental health issues? If so, why did Bell mentally torture its employees during the COVID years by forcing them to get vaxxed? Yeah, even those employees working remotely from home who never came into contact with clients. Gee, maybe Ma Bell believes COVID-19 is transmissible via the telephone. But seriously, Bell caused so many employees to experience all kinds of mental anguish. Get the jab or lose your job. Uh, and by the way, there'd be no let's talk regarding that draconian demand. Shameful. Anyway, CTV, a.k.a. Bell's television puppet, goes on to chronicle the following. Quote, a recent report published by the Boston Consulting Group found that 5 million young professionals in Canada are in need of mental health support, advising businesses and organizations to invest more into employee well-being. There's still a lot of stigma in discussing mental health, young people especially are feeling discouraged from presenting the issues that they're facing right now. Geneve Benin, co-author of the report and managing director and partner at BOG, told ctvnews.ca. Organizations do care greatly about the health and well-being of their employees, and I think this is now a very open topic for many organizations, but organizations are very slow to recognize the extent of the crisis so they don't necessarily have an overarching strategy. The study found 25% of all Canadians reported having symptoms of a mental health disorder in 2021, while 50% said they need mental health support and 35% report being burnt out. As for the future of the workforce and the livelihood of 18 to 24 year olds, 40% of the demographic is reportedly at a breaking point for their mental health, end quote. Now, don't get me wrong. Mental illness, be it in the workplace or in general, 
is a very serious issue. I'd wager just about every person viewing this monologue right now knows of someone, either in their professional or personal circles, that is experiencing mental health issues. And even to this day, there is indeed a stigma surrounding mental illness that is absent if someone were to suffer from, say, heart disease or cancer. And yet, the idea that 40%, 40% of 18 to 24-year-old persons are at their so-called breaking point vis-a-vis -vis mental health, is this really the case? Here's the crux of the matter. I'm not sure if all of that 40% of that demographic are truly suffering from mental illness issues. Let me cut to the chase. Could it be that a sizable percentage of that percent are in crisis due to what I call work derangement syndrome? I mean, that 40% number, it's truly staggering. And based on anecdotal evidence, and based on conversations I've had in speaking to human resources personnel, younger folk these days seem more prone to complain or even quit or even simply not show up to the office simply when faced with the rigors of hard work or burning the midnight oil to meet a deadline. Now, I can just hear the outrage from the rank-and-file members of Gen Z and, of course, the magnificent millennials I get the feeling right now they're comparing yours truly to the grumpy old man character brilliantly rendered by Dana Carvey. You know, back when Saturday Night Live was actually funny. In my day, we didn't have these fancy seat belts that would restrain you if your car crashed. In my day, if you stopped suddenly, you knew exactly where you were going, straight through the windshield. <laughs> That was it. End the story. Pull the curtain. Close the shutters. Good night. You were dead and you liked it. Now, by way of clarification, I am by no means painting everyone comprising these younger generations with the same brush. There are young people that are super hard workers and there are indeed superb young entrepreneurs with very healthy bank accounts indeed. But the numbers when it comes to mental health issues in the workplace... They just don't add up to me. The Toronto-based Centre for Addiction and Mental Health, a.k.a. CAMH, notes that, in general, one in five Canadians experience a mental illness. In other words, 20%. However, CAMH does note that young people aged 15 to 24 are more likely to experience mental illness and or substance use disorders than any other age group. Indeed, 39% of Ontario high school students indicate a moderate to serious level of psychological distress, i.e. symptoms of anxiety and depression. A further 17% indicate a serious level of psychological distress. Now, again, defaulting to grumpy old man mode, back when I was in high school in the late 70s and early 80s, I don't recall experiencing psychological distress, nor did I observe this with the rest of the student body. And believe me, folks, I was never part of the cool kids club at school. So what's going on here now? I mean, when I went to high school, there seemed to be more pressure to succeed than what exists today. You could actually fail a subject. You could actually be mandated to go to summer school.
now talk about psychological distress. These days, of course, nobody fails, even if little Johnny or Janie can't spell cat, even if you spot them the C and the T, they're going to pass. And I do not exaggerate when it comes to the laissez-faire, anything-goes attitude that exists in schools these days. Case in point, do you remember that outrageous case of an Edmonton school teacher, Lyndon Dorvell, going back a decade ago? In 2012, Mr. Dorvell was actually fired by the Edmonton School District. And what crime did this teacher commit? Was he inappropriate on social media or did he do something offside with any of his students? Oh no, the precise opposite is true. For this veteran teacher was simply doing his job. Here's the skinny. Some students in Dorvell's high school class simply declined to hand in their homework. Others didn't show up to take tests. So Dorvell did exactly what you'd expect any educator to do. He gave those students a zero mark. Oh, but wait a minute, not so fast. The school board deemed that Dorvell was acting in an inappropriate fashion. The Edmonton School District evidently has or had a no zero grade policy, even if there's nothing to grade. And when Dorvell refused to bend the knee to the board, he was first suspended, and then four months later, he was terminated outright from his position at Rosh Shepherd High School. Yeah, evidently, the school board thought it was cruel and unusual punishment for students not to be rewarded for work that wasn't being done. In their eyes, Dorval was a barbarian that had to be banished. Unbelievable. Then again, folks, perhaps the Edmonton School District was simply ahead of the curve when it came to wokeness. While determining a mark for, say, written English essays is wholly subjective, these days there are teachers in the math and sciences department that have also gone woke. In other words, two plus two equals four. That's a very good answer, but it's not the only answer. Maybe the sum of two plus two is five. Hey, that's okay. Or how about 13? Hey, 100 is a nice round number, isn't it? Yeah, maybe 2 plus 2 equals 100. Because to be rigid in mathematical equations, well, that's an example of colonialism or imperialism or white supremacy or something. And from the classroom to the sporting fields, nobody in amateur sports loses anymore. In fact, there are some soccer leagues for kids in which scores aren't even being kept. And if a team goes 0 for 25 during the course of the regular season, no worries. At the end of the season, every player shall be rewarded with a participation trophy. These academic and sporting policies are truly systemic problems. Today, there is an overriding policy of no harm, no foul. Don't hand in an assignment. Hey, no worries. You'll get a passing grade. Can't even get a shot on goal. That's okay. You're an MVP, kid. So could it be that we have raised a generation or three in which work, especially hard work, causes an adverse reaction? Is this really what is being interpreted as so-called mental health breakdowns. Look, when young people enter the real world, especially in the private sector, 
an employer justifiably expects performance. If you don't perform, if you miss deadlines, if you sleep in, if you don't get the work done, you don't get a passing grade or a trophy. You get reprimanded or perhaps even fired. For a young person who has been mollycoddled all their life, be it via the school system or helicopter parenting, the demands of the workplace must come across as something of a toxic shock to his or her system. Indeed, there was a very prolific and public firing, and I would say justified firing, just a couple of weeks ago in the world of pro sports. I speak of the now ex-general manager of the Toronto Maple Leafs, Kyle Dubas. Dubas was born in 1985, by the way, making him a millennial. Yeah, I know I'm guilty of millennial bashing, I guess, folks, but too many of them just make it so darn easy, truth be told. Now, coaches and general managers in pro sports, they get fired all the time. But when Leafs president Brendan Shanahan terminated Dubas, this was a -a one-of-a-kind tale, I think, in the history of pro sports, As the story goes, on Sunday, May 14th, Shanahan and Dubas had hammered out a framework for a deal that would provide a contract extension to the Leafs GM. I'm not sure why, under Dubas, the Leafs only won a single playoff round these last several years. Anyway, according to the aptly named Yahoo Sports, during the team's end-of-year media availability the very next day on Monday... Dubas told reporters that he would either return as Maple Leafs GM or he would take the year off, you know, to reflect, citing the toll the season took on his family. Off? Take the year off? Geez, that reminds me of one of my favorite automotive ads of all time, namely the advertising spot for the Cadillac ELR. Check it out. Why do we work so hard? For what? For this? For stuff? Other countries, they work, they stroll home, they stop by the cafe, they take August off. Off. Why aren't you like that? Why aren't we like that? Because we're crazy, driven, hardworking believers, that's why. Those other countries think we're nuts. Whatever. We're the Wright Brothers insane? Bill Gates, Les Paul, Ali. Were we nuts when we pointed to the moon? That's right. We went up there, you know what we got? Bored. So we left. Got a car up there, left the keys in it. Do you know why? Because we're the only ones going back up there, that's why. But I digress. It's pretty simple. You work hard, you create your own luck, and you gotta believe anything is possible. As for all the stuff, that's the upside of only taking two weeks off in August. Nespa? You know, General Motors would never run an ad like that today, not during the Biden administration, at least. What you just watched was just way too much American exceptionalism, which has now been reimagined as white privilege or white supremacy or something like that. But anyway, taking a year off, well, you know, why not, Kyle? I mean, it's only been 56 years since the Leafs hoisted Lord Stanley's shaving mug. I guess another year or so won't make a difference in the long run. And what was the deal in terms of Dubas referencing his family? How did managing the Maple Leafs affect Mrs. Dubas and their two young children? 
And really, you'd think Dubis was flying bomber missions over enemy territory during a time of war, but Dubis had a dream job, wouldn't you say? He was in the cushy front office being paid some $4 million a year not to score goals or save goals, but rather to sit on his ricotta cheese candy ass and work the phones. Where's the stress for the Dubis family in that? So it was that as team president Shanahan mauled over the statements made by Dubis during that disastrous Monday morning press conference, well, Shanahan justifiably came to the conclusion that Dubis was not exactly, you know, all in in terms of being the Leafs GM moving forward. So when a press conference was held on Friday, May 19th at the Leafs practice facility, it was supposed to be all about giving Dubis a raise and a contract extension. But instead, it turned out that Dubis was fired. It was shocking. And yet, who could blame Shanahan for this? Dubis, the so-called boy wonder of NHL GMs, could only whine about his inability to seal the deal. You know, Toronto winning the cup. Um, would you believe two playoff series in a row? Yikes. In the final analysis, Dubis was someone who made millions at a desk job in which, over the course of five years, all he accomplished was overpromising and underachieving. Yet he felt he was entitled to a raise and a contract extension, assuming that is that his family was okay with him staying on the job, that they could all cope with the stress. Are you kidding me? Some boy wonder. Holy backfire. You know, folks, I have a sporting bet with a friend, and it's this. What is going to happen first? The Toronto Maple Leafs shall win the Stanley Cup, or I'm going to die. Let me tell you, sports fans, the smart money is on the Grim Reaper here. Anyway, at the end of the day, here's the deal. Are younger people to blame for their inability to cope with the rigors of employment, or maybe the blame goes to those social engineers of yesterday, you know, the geniuses who decided that, be it academia or in the sporting world, one can never lose and everyone is a champion. Isn't that just setting up people for failure down the road when it comes to the workplace? So just maybe participation trophies should be replaced by gold, silver, and bronze participation medals. Perhaps the policy of not handing in an assignment or taking a test means the student receives a well-earned zero grade as opposed to a passing mark is deemed to be a good thing. Maybe so-called woke math teachers need to actually, you know, follow the science subscribing to the fact that two plus two equals four and that it always has and that it always will colonialism be damned indeed instead of turning a blind eye to abysmal performance or ignoring it altogether we need to instill in youth that there is no shame in honest failure but only based upon the proviso that you pick yourself up dust yourself off and start all over again, the idea being that you try harder with the ultimate goal of succeeding rather than failing or 
simply not caring. Otherwise, is it really any wonder that a growing number of young people are experiencing what they perceive to be mental illness in the workplace? They are simply being asked to perform hard work in a competitive environment. Sadly, for too many, this is an alien concept. Hey folks, I'm old enough to remember when Peter Ustinov described the city of Toronto as a kind of New York operated by the Swiss. Alas, Mr. Ustinov uttered that quote in 1987, and some 36 years later, well, Toronto has kind of devolved into a kind of New York as operated by gangbangers, thugs, and other ne'er-do-wells. The city is dirtier, graffiti is everywhere. The streets are paralyzed by gridlock, and riding the subway can be fraught with danger. And get this, literally across the street from Young Dundas Square, Toronto's version of Times Square, the city operates a so-called safe injection site where everything from needles to crack pipes are distributed to addicts and even, as the case may be, minors. And with more on this sad, sad situation is Harrison Faulkner with True North. Hey, how are you doing there, Harrison? Good. Well, I recovered from my trip downtown. That was yesterday. I made it out of there safely. Uh, but it was interesting, David. They didn't want any journalists there to uncover what is actually taking place. They're very proud of their decisions to give away free crack pipes, but don't seem nearly as proud to show the rest of us. Well, you know what? I'm not surprised by that one bit. Back in 2020, when Nathan Phillips Square was occupied uh, basically by hobos and grifters, uh, Mayor Tory allowed that to go on for three weeks, uh, 11 sections of the Trespass Act being broken. And yet when we went down and other journalists went down to cover it, we were being trespassed by city security. They even called the police on us and said, vamoose or what? I mean, the pandering to the lunatic fringe in this city is out of control. But, you know, before we get into the nitty gritty of your report, Harrison, I just want to right now throw to a clip of what you witnessed firsthand, right? A stone's throw away from Young and Dundas here. Check it out, folks. All right, so we're here at Young and Dundas, the heartbeat of Toronto, as some people call it. As some people say, it's the, it's where the city comes to life. But actually, if you go one block across, well, it looks a lot like the opposite of life. It looks a lot more like death. Behind me in that building, allegedly, I'll be allowed to receive my free crack pipe, my free crystal meth pipe, drug kits, and whatever. That's what that's what they're giving away to the city for free. So we're gonna head on inside and see what it's like. I'll try and take you with me. I'll be as discreet as possible. Hi. I'm here to collect my free drug pipe, my crack pipe. Can I get that here? Uh, you can get that in the other side. This the works? Is a, this is a clinic. Okay, Sorry. where's the works? Over there. This door right here? Yeah. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, I just got to the lobby as well, so I'll play you that camera. Yeah, right. So 
Well, I'm here to collect my free crack pipe, Christian meth pipe. Okay, well, you're recording. Yep. Sure, it seems like that's not the case, so I do have to advise you that's against the policy while you're going. Oh, okay, I won't record. Okay, dude, you gotta leave. Why? I can't, I can't record. You gotta leave. Like I said, you gotta leave. Wow, that is shocking footage. Um, you'd think it was being run by drug dealers, but they're City of Toronto employers. Here's the thing, Harrison. How did we get here in the first place? Well, all of this is being marketed under the under the City of Toronto's safe supply and harm reduction strategy. I guess this is their strategy, David, to try and solve addiction crisis solve the addiction crisis by giving addicts everything they could possibly want to perpetuate their addiction. I mean, there's no real sense at all that I got that this was, this has anything to do with treating addiction. It's the opposite. Of course, it is, it is perpetuating addiction. I have no idea how we got here, but this seems to be the same exact thing that's taking place in Vancouver and in other smaller cities in, in Ontario. It's just mayhem out there. It's just wild. And this is now their strategy to actually solve the problem. Or maybe they don't they don't have any interest in solving the problem. That's how it looks like. That's what it looks like to me, at least. Yeah, Harrison, they call it harm reduction. But as you noted in your report, it's more like uh, perpetuating addiction. And for that matter, misery. These are people in horrible circumstances. And the idea that we would aid and abet this kind of addiction. And, you know, what I found amazing, we've heard reports of minors walking in uh, to get this paraphernalia. You know, if you ran a convenience store, Harrison, and you sold cigarettes to somebody under 18, uh, you're going to get in big trouble if it's found out. Um, and I'm just wondering, how far do we take this perverted philosophy? Uh, there are people addicted to alcohol. They're called alcoholics. What if somebody had lost their license? Uh, they have to. They can't drive anymore. Can't get to the LCBO. Are in the city of Toronto's eyes? Maybe we should uh, drive out there uh, with uh, bottles of bourbon to aid and abet that addiction. I know it. It sounds preposterous, but look what's happening right in the city center. Well, exactly. If you take this concept, this harm reduction concept, for any other addiction that we obviously are trying to solve in our society. Well then we're 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 already in lunacy we're already in in like lunacy territory here David but we're not going to give away dr uh, drinks for free to alcoholics we're not going to allow children to walk into the LCBO and walk out fr with free booze but at this site at this young and Dundas site on one side they're giving out the drug starter kit everything you could possibly want to get started on hard drugs and then on the other side just at the door beside it well, that's where you can get your hydromorphone, which is a more potent heroin alternative. Now, we already see, we've seen the reports. We've all seen all, all the news and the data. This hydromorphone that the government is providing to addicts, which is paid for by us, David, it's being flipped on the street for fentanyl because addicts aren't getting the kind of rush they want from hydromorphone, but it's even stronger than heroin. So, I mean, I don't even know where this goes if we're going to keep going in this territory. Now, Alberta is trying to actually give treatment, but there's no indication that that's what we're trying to do here in Ontario. It's just crazy. You know, I'm glad you brought up Alberta. I was fortunate enough uh, back in March, Harrison, 
to be at a um, function where uh, Premier Daniel Smith was being given an award. And she spoke about this, that unlike the province next door, uh, British Columbia, which is all about aiding and abetting addicts, uh, different kettle of fish in uh, the Wild Rose province, namely police tell these addicts, listen, we can either do it this way, you can be arrested and we bring you off to jail, which I'm sure you don't want, or you can voluntarily enroll into a program. They have these dormitories set up. It's actually quite fascinating the way Premier Smith described it, Harrison. Um, these people are told the very basics because you have to start from a clean slate. You know, how to uh, budget for groceries, how to shop, how to cook meals. And you're in a dormitory uh, uh, setting and they are getting results. And by results, I mean the aiding and abetting of addiction, that's over with. These people are getting clean and sober. Who doesn't want that as a model to help these people who are addicted to these vile things you just described? The worst part about it, Dave, David, is that the, the city of Toronto has the gall to describe this as compassion. What they're <laughs> doing is compassion. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, but... When I went down there, the people that I spoke to, and I actually off camera spoke to some of the addicts. Um, and that's actually how I managed to get the bag of goodies, as I call it, from the Toronto Public Health. They didn't allow a journalist to get it, but I managed to have an addict go in there for me so I could show the city what they're giving away for free with our money. Now, they have they call this compassion, but I can tell you it's not compassionate. These people are dying, they're rotting away, and the city has no intention of actually trying to get them to be fixed. I, when I was speaking to one of the, these men, he was he was devastated. He could barely even speak to me, but I did make out that I asked him, "Were you are you getting any sort of treatment at all for this?" Mm. And he basically said to me, "No, not at all. Everyone around me is just basically in the same position." Uh, he didn't say this, but the reality is, these guys are just spinning their wheels and they're moving in the wrong direction. They're moving towards death. They're not moving towards recovery. And the city doesn't seem to care while telling all of us it's the so-called compassionate approach. Insane. Yeah, absolutely, Harrison. I was reading some of the comments on your YouTube feed, and here is one that really uh, broke my heart. I lost a member of my family to these kind of drugs. This is wrong. Shame. So where's the compassion in greasing the rails for someone to meet a premature ending to their life. I, that's the opposite of compassion, wouldn't you say, Harrison? It completely is the opposite of compassion. The only way that I can try and think about the city doing this is that someone is making a lot of money off of this, David. That's mm -hmm. the only reason why I could possibly think that some sane people would come up with a policy like this. There's just, there, there's no, there's no way that you could go down to where I was today or yesterday and come up with the idea that this is compassion. It's not. But I have, a, I have a question, and I put this out on Twitter, and I'm trying to figure this out myself. Who is manufacturing the crack pipes that the city is buying with our money and giving away for free? Mm. Who is manufacturing all these needles? You can get five needles a bag. You can get a crack pipe. You can get a crystal meth starter kit. Someone is getting rich off the backs of these poor victims. These The addicts are the victims here. The city... The government, the federal government that's pushing this, they are the ones that are responsible for this. And someone is making off like a bandit. And Harrison, do we have a dollar figure on how much uh, taxpayer dollars are going into funding these programs in the city of Toronto, at least? 
I wish I had the number. I don't, David, but I have to imagine that it's it's got to be immense. It's got to be immense because all you got to do is walk around the city. You can see needles everywhere. You can see homeless addicts everywhere. It's yeah. only getting worse. So clearly there's a lot of money being spent on this and not, no money, is, as I can see, is really being spent on treatment. Harrison, we, we're getting uh, near the end of this interview, but before I leave uh, you, uh, I think here's the elephant in the room when it comes to a final question. We are in the midst of a municipal by-election for mayor of Toronto, thanks to John Tory resigning in disgrace last February. Here's the thing. If you believe the polls, Harrison, Olivia Chow is the prohibitive favorite. Uh, she's got the backing of several unions. Um, I guess she has name recognition. I, I find it hard to believe uh, someone can, uh, you know, get a critical mass of votes giving her hard left policies. But what I'm getting at, Harrison, I, if she does become mayor, I fear that this beloved city of my birth, we are going to be on the fast track to Portland, Oregon, San Francisco, Seattle. It, what we're seeing now is just the tip of the iceberg under what the city would look like uh, with Olivia Chow as the mayor. Your final thoughts, my friend. You're exactly right. Olivia Chow thinks that we haven't done enough of this. Olivia Chow's idea is that we just, we haven't, we haven't, we haven't really fully seen how great harm reduction and safe supply is. Just wait until I'm in charge and we're going to really ratchet it up. So if it's going to get any worse than this, David, well, we're really in for a very uh, scary ride. I can't believe it. I can't even imagine she's that high in the polls. It's shocking to me, but that's the truth. If she wins, this is going to get way worse. And San Francisco, we're going to become the new San Francisco. Other cities are going to say, we don't want to become Toronto. That's what we're looking at here. We're going to be the standard bearer for the failures of this wild urban decay that these people want to try and bring onto us. It's unbelievable, Harrison, how fast things can change from a kind of New York run by the Swiss to this and to what awaits if Olivia Chow becomes mayor. Um, I'm already thinking my exit strategy. Costa Rica looks pretty good, I heard. It sure does. It sure does. We'll, 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 we'll see what happens at the end of the month uh, on Election Day. Harrison, thank you so much for this report. It was excellent. And you stay safe out there, young man. Thank you very much. Well, hey, folks, a lot of feedback from last night's show, guest hosted by my beloved colleague, Sheila Gunn-Reed. Sheila touched upon the fact that the so-called Canadian Anti-Hate Network, well, they're having a hissy fit because police aren't taking their complaints seriously. Oh, poor babies. And of course, Sheila weighed in on why the heck is Rachel Notley still sticking around given the disastrous results for the NDP on Monday? In any event, you had plenty to say. H1R086 writes, if they were opposed to hatred, they would dissolve their own organization and tell the liberals to do the same. You know, I totally agree with you, my friend. They do not oppose hatred. They actually create hatred. They're all, all about division, not unification. I mean, there is no truth in advertising to their name, the Canadian Anti-Hate Network. 
put another way, they kind of remind me of Antifa. You know how that's a contraction of anti-fascist Antifa, yet Antifa embraces everything that makes fascism fascism. Violence, vandalism, you name it. It's the same deal with the Canadian Anti-Hate Network. They need to just take out the word anti from their name. Now, talk about truth in advertising. And when it comes to Rachel Notley, leader of the Alberta NDP, Bristolian writes, hopefully she will stay on and her Marxist halfwits get reduced to a handful of seats in Edmonton. Yeah, you know, I mean, lover or loather, here's the thing I don't get about Rachel Notley hanging around. If she couldn't win on Monday, what makes her think she could possibly win four years down the road? Bizarre. Kudre Serpay writes, she's so old, there needs to be an age cap on politicians, mostly so people who are as old as the USA president don't become leaders. It's just sad to see. You know, I'm afraid I can't agree with you on this one. That would make me an ageist. I think it's all about the individual. Look at great leaders from the past, Ronald Reagan, Margaret Thatcher. They weren't spring chickens, and yet they were some of the best leaders of the entire 20th century. Now, I'm not saying that applies to Rachel Notley. Uh, don't get me wrong, but the idea of having an age cap, I'm sorry, even in this day and age of Joe Biden, can't support that. Well, there you go, folks. Thank you so much for tuning in for yet another edition of the Ezra Event Show. I believe the big boss man is back on Monday. So have yourselves a great weekend. And hey, as always, stay safe and stay sane.